If it is to be said, so it be, so it is. This is Evenstar Waco, a special series by my brother, my captain, my podcast. Normally, our adventures have us journeying across Middle Earth, but here we travel to the gilded halls of Logan Roy as we discuss the final season of Succession. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is Tailgate Party, Episode 7 of Succession Season 4. And our spoiler warning is, we will be spoiling all of Succession. (laughs) So, Emily, I have to communicate my abject horror at the ending of this episode. Um, I am, of course, referring to the notion that there might be two Indias in some universe, and that very thought just sends a chill to my bone. (laughs) It's one of those things where, like, sometimes the show makes references, and I'm like, it's not like they're, like, smart references. It's like they're, like, references that sound smart, and so you just kind of know that somewhere someone has, like, nodded along. And been like, ah, yes, of course, I'm going to now integrate that into, like, my daily rota of, like, things that I can say. And someone out there is just going to, like, start whipping that out. And the thought of that brings me, like, an unparalleled amount of joy. And I especially want them to do it on Twitter when they can just get absolutely hammered by some of the most insane people online. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like me. Uh, I don't know if two Indias implies two Winston Churchills, because that's just a really bad thing that would happen. But... Um, no, of course, I really just want to start this episode by talking about Tom and Shiv, um, because I think Sarah Snook and Matthew McFadden gave us one of those quintessential HBO two people in a room or I guess on a balcony screaming at each other um, for like five minutes. And it is just some of the most intense stuff that's been on this show, yeah. probably some of the best performed material yet. Um, and that's no low bar. Um Tell me how insane you were going during this scene at the end of the episode. I started looking up uh, therapists again online about (laughs) two minutes into it. I just think there's like one of the things that I like about this show is that like it is by and large acutely aware of of itself. Not not like in a oh, so that just happened way. But like, you know, it knows when the camera is acting as a voyeur and when it is letting the audience know that the camera is acting as a voyeur or allowing us to act as voyeur voyeurs. Um, and, and something about that kind of slipped away in that just painful to watch fight. Um, and, and it kind of went from like up until the moment at which they both went outside, went through those glass doors. We were like in succession, shaky camera, occasional office angles, Jim making faces at the camera succession. <laughs> and then when they went outside that all kind of slipped away and all of the kind of like traditional stylistic trappings of a succession episode were no longer there. And and it just like opened up a level of like horror. And there wasn't like for the duration of that argument, I don't like, I didn't, I didn't find either Tom or Shiv funny. I didn't find either of them like pitiful in a oh my poor little meow meow way i don't even know if that's a relevant reference anymore i'm just so fucking old now but like (laughs) you know like there there was something where like it fell away from being something where i could kind of laugh at it and be like oh what 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 a great tv show and instead kind of just became something that was like you know before my parents got divorced they didn't argue like that at all not at all that was not a kind of arguing that was like ever present in my household but like it felt like watching it genuinely felt like watching two people who were about to get divorced argue and not two people on a show but like i felt like i was watching something really fucking awful and and two people's two fully realized people's lives and i just like and i didn't feel like a voyeur i just felt bad um and and then when that scene ended and it went back into like you know capital s succession mode it it had this kind of feeling of like my tummy hurts is I think maybe the only way to describe it. And it just set the whole rest of the episode off, not off in a bad way, but it just set it all off for me. And I was suddenly like, I think Tom's about to jump off the balcony. And like, I think if he does that here and now, I'm not going to like make a joke about it. I think I'm probably just going to feel quite sour about it. And, and he didn't, but like it, it was a good moment of the show undercutting itself for a higher purpose, which was like, I think kind of situating us as the viewers 
in the midst of something really uncomfortable in a way that it usually doesn't with Tom and Shiv, kind of like it did at the start of the season with this episode, with the first episode, second episode, first episode, where we see them, you know, holding hands on on the bed and, and maybe thinking, oh, there might be something in this. This felt really painful. I don't know if that makes sense, but there's just something different about it that just was unsettling. No, I I think you're exactly right, especially like noting how the camera stopped doing like the succession, whether it's like the smash close ups or um like the hard pans. Um, it was like shot a little more traditionally, and I don't mean that in any kind of negative way. It just it's more like these are two actors on a set. Like they literally stepped out of the secession room. Like they were in the secession room, because secession generally happens in big rooms and in conferences and dinner parties. Um, but they literally stepped out of that to be in this kind of like you said, there's like nothing funny here. Even like the most like traumatic <laughs> secession stuff usually has like it's, you know, like weird wording or just like an insane metaphor that like you kind of smirk at even as people are like yelling at each other. But this is like full on like, I fucking hate you. I don't think you should have married me. Like yeah. this isn't any of that. I don't want to call secession's normal prose flowery, but whatever that sec- secession flavor of prose is this wasn't that um it's just like tom's tom's literally saying you will be okay because you are a tough fucking bitch there is like no actual equivocating there um it is just straight up like yelling at each not but not even always yelling because this is what's hard for me is because in the many or few times i have mentally broke down it's almost always been because i've been tired yeah um and Tom was this close. He, if he had just gone to bed, because he's like out there when they get out on the balcony, he's like, do you really want to do this? He's like, no, I just need some sleep. Let's leave it there. Let's leave it there. And then they just keep pushing each other. And then all hell breaks loose. And it's just like, oh, my dude, you were so close to just not having this heart attack right now. Because when when I like don't have my sleep, I just lose all control of my emotions, usually. Um, and that's in like a best case scenario. Yeah, yeah. It was, I think it was like the kind of, there was just so much that, like, I don't know. I, like, I think Tom I find interesting because I, I always do kind of take Tom's character seriously, but in a not very serious way. And this was not, like, the word bitch, right? Like, I am generally quite laissez-faire about the word bitch. I think if anybody has ever heard this podcast before, I don't, I don't really, I don't, I certainly don't stop myself from saying it. I don't really care when, when people say it generally. Um, in, in 99.9% of context, I'm never like, ooh, don't do that. Um, but I, 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 the older I get, maybe, or maybe the more grumpy I become, um, there are contexts when I, I, I hear the word bitch and I'm, suddenly not okay with it anymore um and it it is usually instances in which the word bitch is being applied to a woman where it would not be applied to a man in similar circumstances and in a way that projects a certain level of like patriarchal vitriol i.e misogyny um and 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 tom's you will survive this because you're a tough bitch tough fucking bitch felt to me like it should have been one of those moments like it felt like it should have been the moment for me at which i suddenly felt a bit of solidarity with shiv on the basis of we are both women and this thing is being wielded <laughs> against us and instead it did something kind of strange which was it didn't really set off those bells in in quite the same way um because i think it it it, it did something far more interesting which was it kind of ended up and this is going to sound like a joke but it's not but it kind of ended up like an accurate assessment um and, and like I mean, forgive me because that that's kind of a, a caddish way of of getting to that. But like Shiv's personality and and the way in which Shiv is not a good person is so distinctly informed by the fact that she is a woman. Um, and so the way that Shiv is bad and the way that Shiv is annoying and the way that Shiv is cruel is a cruelty and meanness. Uh, cruelty and malice and will to dominate all mankind or whatever it is um you know <laughs> that is reserved to women um and i don't mean that like oh women be bitches but like it is so so informed by the fact that she's a woman she behaves in these ways because she's a woman and whether or not she actually is willing to acknowledge it you know it, it, that so clearly informs and kendall when kendall is cruel or roman when roman is cruel is not cruel in the same ways because their cruelty is is sort of um 
is transmitted through this this vector of, of masculinity in a way that shivs always has to be transmitted through through this vector of um femininity or, or of womanhood and um, and it felt like a really like like shiv is a bitch if there is a platonic ideal of a bitch um that's what shiv is um for better or for worse and for stanishness or not stanishness like that shiv is shiv is almost the archetypal bitch in in some ways and so like misogynistic you know though it may be there was also something really kind of cutting about it and then i think like the fact that it it, 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 you know, the, the kind of inherent femininity of being a bitch and then having Tom immediately undercut that with you would be a terrible mother was such like an enormous one, two punch of just like, there is so much that they have done with Shiv as a character. I don't think we've had in a very long time. I don't think we've had women characters this complex. Um, and there's so much they've done with Shiv and there's so much playing around with Shiv as a woman, Shiv as, as uh, an attempt at genderlessness. Um, and, and to have that one-two punch of Shiv is always going to be trapped by being a woman. And she is going to be in some ways the er-woman under patriarchy and under capitalism. And then at the same time, she will always be failing as a woman because to be this ultimate woman, this girl boss, you also have to fail at the other elements of patriarchal womanhood um, that are foisted upon women. That was so like chef's kiss. I just kind of like sat there and went, I need a drink <laughs> and I don't really drink anymore. So that was like a real <laughs> moment. And I'm probably not going to like ever get over it or move on from just how unbelievable of a, of a kind of moment that was. Well, it's like um, in like the current like Anglo conception of femininity and like the traditional feminine gendered role, like this is all happening at her house. Like the domain of the woman is like very much centered. And even when Kendall gets up and gives his big speech, um, he's like, uh, and by the way, it's here's to Shiv. She's hosting um, because that's, that's what they do. Um, and then I, I really wanted to get into like the whole, um, you know, you would be a terrible mother um, because a, um, in case people don't follow the news around the show, I think Jesse Armstrong has confirmed that Tom is the father. Like there's no mystery there. Um, and I, we we both you know said that earlier in our coverage. And then secondly, it's basically the exact same thing her mom told her at the end of last season, mm -hmm. um, like that just some people are not cut out for it. Um, and you know, I I'm pretty sure she still hasn't told Tom because <laughs> um, yeah, I, for whatever reason, I just I, I think Tom's awful, and I'm not don't want to give him any credit. But I also think if he knew she was pregnant, he probably wouldn't have said that then and there. Yeah. Um, maybe I'm giving him a little too much credit, but I don't know. I feel like just Tom coming up in that conservative, hickish Wisconsin, like, you know, Midwestern friendly atmosphere. Like, I think he might have had a proverbial line there if he actually knew. Um, that's not to say anything he said is, you know, like defensible per se, but, um, and oh, uh, we we got we got to talk about Tom and Shiv in the context of Nate, who makes his big return to the show. Um, and I was a big uh, Nate fan uh, this episode. Um, usually he's contra my boy Tom, so I have to hate him. <laughs> but uh, Nate was a very welcome presence in this episode. Yeah, um, yeah, I think he's such a he's such a little charmer. He feels to me almost like he he's on. A lot of these characters feel like they're on the wrong show for what they're hoping to be on, but like. I don't think Nate is hoping to be on any TV show, but he feels like he kind of accidentally walked out of Veep. Um, and I don't mean that like he's like cartoonishly incompetent, but he just feels like one of these characters who should be in Veep somewhere in the background and then somehow stumbled onto the succession set and is there instead. And there's always like, I'm always waiting for something out of him that feels Veep-ish. And it's never quite there, but every time he is there, I'm like, God, it's so strange to think that there is a like a, a kind of more boringly... Um, not boring, but a kind of more mundane political element to this and that like there is allegedly a left push and pull in this world and Nate for various reasons is re meant to represent that. Um, and it's just, he's such a weird little freak of a guy. I'm glad he's there. I'm glad he immediately fucked off though. Cause that was also such that these people have all crossed the Rubicon and Kendall's pathetic. <laughs> and like, it's all ah, the, the, the whole setup of the party and the tightness of that room and the weird intermingling of people and like Nate being the one to leave and then Tom being the one to leave and Shiv being left there alone, surrounded by once again, her family, even after she's failed and fucked up. There's just so much like there's so much to get into there. 
But for me, the only thing I really want is to just put Nate and Tom in scenes together again so that Tom can say weird, embarrassing things about wine some more. <laughs> yeah, and try to uh, pawn off his shitty-ass, uh, what, what, German, earthy wine that tastes like the ground? <laughs> um one thing, because uh, one thing I forget pretty easily is that Nate and Kendall were buddies. Um, like, that's, I assume, how, like, he got into Shiv's, you know, sphere in the first place. Um, he's, like, the first person who, like, did the whole, oh, you're not your dad. But then he followed it up and said, and that's a good thing, which is literally the first time anyone has said that. And I think also the first time anyone has meant it. Because whenever, like, people say that to, it's usually, like, Rome and Ken, but also to Shiv a little bit. Um, it usually means, like, you're not as great. And I mean great as in grand or immense. Like, not, you know, not quite, um, like, saying, like, you're a good person. But, like, Logan was great. He was larger than life. And he was able to do things by force of will. Um, and they, they all have, like, components of him. But none of them have, like, all of it. Um, so, and this is, like, the first time someone's saying, you know what? That might not be a bad thing. Um, it might be bad for this, like this specific game that you're playing, trying to juggle Fox News and the presidency <laughs> and try to acquire Facebook. But just in general, it might not be a bad thing that you are not Logan Roy. Yeah. Well, but and and the Loganness of so many of these characters, I think, really leapt out. I mean, it continues to leap out during during Logan's absence makes makes the Loganness of the rest of them so much clearer. But but I think in their own ways, with the exception of Roman, who I think continues to fall farther and farther away from his Loganness, um, Shiv has in this episode really embodied Logan in in some startling ways. Um, I think just her total inhumanity being being kind of the chief among them. Um, but Kendall, Kendall continues to be the most depressing iteration of of Logan. I think in the show, just at any point in the show, and 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 I think the thing, the other thing besides the Tom and Shiv interaction that really struck me as like grim on exciting or maybe not exciting new levels was Kendall's um, spat fight with Rava over his kid, um, and and Kendall just straight up being a terrible father, and then saying everything I do, I do for my kids, which was. Logan's exact line as he's sort of being forced to deal with the fact that like, you know, he was he's effectively an absentee parent to his children who now all hate him. And, and Logan's line as well was like everything I did, I did for my children. Um, and, and Kendall yelling that after Rava, who's who's he, he has also just yelled out for things totally out with her control, entirely his fault. And um, it was just like it's like the portrait of Dorian Gray, almost exactly that as well in some ways, because like, you know, Logan continuing to sit in a kilt, presumably in a coffin somewhere and continuing to like become less of the magnate, less of the power that he once was and and Kendall becoming that in more ways, um, but also just falling short of it. Um, there is that sort of weird inverse relationship there that I think as it manifests itself through the children who we thought maybe could have hope of escaping the cycle of Logan aren't and and there's something uniquely i think grim about that especially on show in this episode yeah uh one thing i found funny is a couple uh episodes ago i commented that one of my favorite parts of the show is the cold open and usually how you can hear like the main opening title credits like sneak into the score before it actually cuts to it um and it's usually a very you know classy kind of uh transition but I love that for this episode, it's basically Ken yelling at Rava, you know, I'm working on things on six continents and whatever bullshit, I'm doing it for the kids, like you said. And then it does a hard smash to the opening title credits, um, which is, I don't know, it just kind of struck me as funny. Um, that whole cold open also, because that's when we see Shiv and Tom in the daytime um, and Shiv's all comfy and her like, you know, just woke up from probably fucking all night <laughs> because apparently Tom's not sleeping. And he gives the scorpion present. Um, so it's like they knew exactly what they were setting up. And I think it was very deliberate that like all that stuff is shot in the day. Um, like because both, you know, Ken just like kind of gets owned by logic by Rava <laughs> or she doesn't even have to do it because the things Ken is saying about doing it for the kids and caring about the kids um, is so, you know, obviously wrong that later on in the episode when you think it's um you know Matson and kenny are showing down and you just figure Matson would eat his lunch because we've seen kendall self-destruct so many times before 
but it's actually the other way around at night. Kendall kind of wakes up um, and he just, he, I mean, Matson kind of fucks himself in that whole dialogue because he goes a little bit homophobic with just calling his numbers gay. <laughs> um, but it, but it just like, it really like, I did not expect Kendall to like win like an epic rap battle between him and Matson, but somehow he was able to pull it off. It's, there's so much about like, I mean, first off, Kendall Roy, civil rights icon, thank you for standing up for the gays. Um, but like the night and day dichotomy, I really love because it's also like, like there, there are these two varying power dynamics, these two kind of alternating relationship dynamics. But like one of the things that I think is consistent, whether it's nighttime or daytime, is Tom's inability to to use the things that he has or wants, which is money and power. Because the thing that struck me the most, right, about the nice daytime matrimonial shot of or or sequence of of Tom bringing Shiv breakfast and then giving her the most insane present of all time is that like tom has gourmet chefs make a beautiful breakfast for shiv and because tom doesn't fully know how to make money work for him or make power work for him and is instead sort of obsessed with making himself servile he brings her the breakfast and Shiv obviously does not respect him for this. And like, there's a look that 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 she gives him as he hands her the breakfast that is just full of like, you are the help. Like, you are literally the help. And Tom doesn't realize this because Tom is obsessed with making himself like submissive despite his sort of a, a desperation to have money and power. And then you look at like, you know, the this party that they're having at night is like all of the most powerful people in the United States are are in that room. And and it's the room, you know, it's the room where it happens. It's the room where Tom so desperately wants to be. And yet the whole fucking time, he can't even be in the room because he's so tired. Because he just hasn't learned how to use his power correctly. And he hasn't u- learned how to use his wealth correctly. And, like, he's such a little social climber. But, you know, he's the, he's the dog that caught the ambulance. And, and now he's just sitting there with the ambulance. And he's like, what the fuck do I do? And Shiv knows that he doesn't know how to deal with it and so doesn't respect it. And so knows that, like... She can always go to a million different directions, whether it's Matson or Nate or any of the other people. Um, and Tom will never matter to her or never impress her. And 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 that push and pull is always there. And I just think it's like there is the, you know, the daytime, the Bruce Wayne against the Batman dynamic for all of the rich kids. But for, you know, the 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 interlopers, for the Toms, for the Willas, even, there is only them and it doesn't matter what scenario you put them in they are just people who have had to have personalities that persist in a way that the little rich kids just have not had to ever do yeah um while while we're there i gotta say with like the utter tanking of greg's character this season (laughs) i like as written not (laughs) not for any other reason but like um i think willa is clearly like the best character in all of this um like I loved everything with her and Khan, not just this episode, but this season specifically, even though they haven't been like, you know, center stage as much as the other three children. Um, every time they're on screen, it's a delight. Alan Ruck is having just um the best time being this like one percent polling candidate. Um, I love all the talking about like these like global South countries that he might be an ambassador to um, Oman, which is what the poor man, Saudi Arabia or the rich man's Yemen. Um <laughs> And but they don't want to give him any place with nukes. His like weird crank lawyer is back as well, or his campaign manager, whoever uh, that guy is. Um, but like they're like, I love the bit at the end where so Roman tries to you know talk to Jerry and he suffers a big owl there, and we'll we'll come back to Roman Jerry. But then like immediately after that, he goes over to Khan. Like he's like, I I took an owl, now I'm gonna take it out on someone which is something we've seen a lot in this show. Usually like Logan takes it out on Shiv and then Shiv takes it out on Tom and then Tom takes it out on Greg or something like that. But here you see Roman just immediately getting owned by Jerry. And then he just like marches over to Khan is like, 
fuck it, you you have to pull out. I don't care whatever, you know, bullshit country you want. And, you know, Khan's like, no. And I'm going to listen to the one person here who doesn't think I'm a joke, which is my <sighs> wife, which Roman very shittily said, your wife, like, quote unquote, um, like when he was like trying to yell at her like that is honestly as mean as I've seen Rome yeah. be to any of his siblings. Um, and most of all, Khan, who's like the most harmless and the least guilty of anything, really? Um, of, of the kids. Um, so like that really took me back, but that's why I'm glad like a character like Will is there is like, no, fuck you. Um, you know, he's going to run and he's going to, you know, get 1% of the vote tomorrow and hopefully hand it to Jimenez, I guess. Oh, oh my God. I, Willa, like, you're right. Like Willa is, Willa is the, Willa wins the Game of Thrones. Um, Willa, there's just so much. And I, uh, we see so little of her <laughs> and yet I think it is the mm-hmm. very little of her that we see that humanizes her because I think like, you know, it's not that we're necessarily getting more time with Greg in this season. I think we're actually probably getting less time overall with Greg. Yeah, I'd agree with Greg is like more in the scenes. He's more in the scene and on the scene than he has been in previous seasons. Like he is more routinely in with the power players than he ever was before. And I think that is a sign of his ongoing dehumanization. Um, and the more we saw of him and the more he wasn't in the room with those people, the more human he felt. Um, and now we are really not spending much time outside of the room, the room where it happens. And and Willa is not spending very much time in there. Um, and so in the fleeting glimpses of her that we see, um, usually in contrast to the rest of these people who are just not people anymore, she seems so unbelievably human. Um, and, and I think it is on that basis alone. Really, I think like this show is actually about the struggle for like y- your ability to keep your soul, um, really. Um, and, and Willa has, she's done the thing that I think like in strict kind of patriarchal moral terms, she has done the thing that you are not meant to do, which is she is not really marrying for love. She's not really being a girl boss and getting a job. She's a gold digger. She's uh, an escort. She is all of these things that you are not meant to be. And yet it is through these, the ways in which she like contravenes what you are meant to be that she actually maintains her humanity. And I think that's the kind of thing that like Connor, who has this pathetic libertarian streak to him, but who is obviously reaching towards this sense of authenticity. He wants to be part of the salt of the earth. That's why he's doing this libertarian bullshit. Because like, if you look at what like rich people think they think that like the common man you know the the if you want to live like common people um you have to have utterly insane libertarian views and 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 connor is doing that he he thinks the way to to be truly authentic to connect with the common american worker is to be a libertarian weirdo but like he's obviously crying out for some sort of attachment to to things that are real to things that are authentic and I think that's why his draw to Willa is so strong and, and seems to really only grow stronger because she has a level of she has a human soul. She really has a human soul in a way that like nobody else in his family does. Um, and, you know, she levels with him right before they get married. And it seems a little cynical and it is a little cynical, but there's something really human about it. And even in the way that Tom and Shiv are leveling with one another at the end of the episode, you know, the, the fight that they have, it should be a moment that feels intensely human because of how low they both are and because of how cutting they both are and emotional they are. And yet they feel like robots. They just don't feel like people. They don't feel like people with souls. Um, and, and, and Willa is, she's got her soul. Um, and Connor's defense of her, I think is his attempt to grab a soul if he's able to get one and, and really hold fast it. And Roman, his inability to not be a massive dick at any point in this episode is he's done for. He's just fucking done. I feel. <laughs> yeah. Uh, just to close off on Willow real quick. One thing I was thinking about is thinking about like the mockumentary style office or reality TV camera work in this show. Um, and how often Willa is not like allowed to be center camera, center stage on this show. Mm-hmm. Like how often do we hear her speaking from like the margins or someone's like sitting in front of her or she's speaking from off screen. You almost think like the cameras really like they were hired by the Roy's um, to follow the Roy's. So that's why there's just an unordinate amount of attention, you know, focused on the actual siblings and it's trying to cut everyone else out a little bit. Um, and Willa, most of all, because of the interloper, she's the one who's, kind of there like through like 
I, I don't know. I don't want to describe it in any kind of demeaning way, but it's just like, you know, Tom, Tom seems to have at least worked his yeah. way up somehow yeah. to at least meet Shiv, whereas Willa just, you know, kind of got the lucky call one time and just, you know, her John ended up being someone she like was compatible with generally. Yeah. Um, so it is kind of something where it's almost like they're intentionally like not focusing on her because they don't want her to be a major player here um, for whatever, either moralistic or just, you know, bullshit capitalist reasons that you can think of. Um, but I, I, I really like that. And I really like what you were saying about how her lack of actual screen time, in a sense, has only bolstered like her actual presence in this show and almost like a centering force, especially vis-a-vis Connor. Um, and that's just made the show all that much richer. Um, but you were about to talk about the human disaster that was Roman Roy. Um, so let us talk about him because um, he's completely gone off the rails. Um, and I think he's got... When I when we watched the episode two weeks ago, the one up in Norway, um, and when he loses his shit at, on top of the mountain... Um, you know, part of me was like, I, I know he's genuine here. It's not like some play or masterminded plot, but it was just kind of an outburst or whatever. But now the following couple of episodes, I'm just like, oh, he's completely unraveling. And he was unraveling on top of the mountain. He just got lucky. It played well in front of Matson. Um, that could have been a meltdown that completely went the other way on him. Um, and like it wasn't anything tactical or he has no read on, you know, Matson or his dad or what his dad wanted with this Gojo deal. Um, he's just been completely out of control. And one time he got lucky the very first time with Matson, but then firing Joy and then firing Jerry last week. And then everything he's doing this um, episode is a complete mistake, um, especially I would say uh, what he was um if he had like been more conciliatory towards Jerry, there's probably a path out of this. But instead, he's like, oh, I was, you know, kidding about firing you and stuff like that. Um, and like, he just absolutely did not take anything she said seriously. Um, and one thing that's really starting to get to me is that these people have dirt on these Roy children. Like some of them know Kendall killed someone. Um you know, some, some of them know Roman sent a dick pic to Jerry um, and they still act like they're invincible, which is really just like it's waiting for that sort of Damocles to just come off and take off their heads. Nice. Um, but c- there is like a way out for these people and they're just not seeing it and they're not seeing the obvious doom that's also coming for them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Roman, I think, is so fascinating because, you know, we, we've talked about this before where like all of the other siblings have kind of been forced to develop personalities independent of Logan to a certain extent. Um, you know, Shiv did most of her developing a uh, personality independent of Logan off screen before season one. And then hers has just been the unraveling of that personality as she gets brought back into the fold. Kendall's has been on screen. Connor's is all over the place, but like Roman never cut the umbilical cord um, and he didn't cut the umbilical cord until daddy died. And, and so he's never developed a personality independent of Logan. He's never developed a skill set independent of Logan. He's never done anything independent of Logan. And, and now he's the one who, like, all of his siblings seem to have discernible wants and needs of their own and, and personalities and relationships. But Logan, or not Logan, uh, Roman had nothing that was not the business. I mean, his only meaningful relationship besides Tabitha, who I wish he would come back and save us all, um, was <laughs> with with Jerry and that's over because he made a stupid business decision and he's having to learn that, you know, for other people who are not his, literally his family members, it's not a family business and they are not tied to this and forced to come, you know, ricocheting back every single time the lead extends too far because they're, they're, they're related by family. You know, Jerry is a high powered CEO. She's or not a CEO. She's a high powered lawyer. Well, she is a CEO, but she's a high powered lawyer. She can go do whatever the fuck she wants or nothing at all. And it won't change anything for her. And she won't have an emotional connection to the company because it's, it's not her patch in the way that it is for for Roman, who's just got nothing in his life. Um, and I think really, I still kind of feel like at the end, there will be flame outs from Kendall. There will be flame outs from Shiv. There will be possibly either not a flame out or like a nice snuffing out um, of Connor. Um, I really do still feel like Roman's going to be the one left holding the knife at the end. Not because he came to the party late or because he was the best duelist, but because he's the only one who doesn't know how to take action on his own. And it's just there's there's such like a his spinning out right now feels like it's kind of about to go 
thermonuclear in a way. I just feel like there's something more that's about to happen here and it's going to be bad. Yeah, I'm really pinning or thinking that's going to have to do with the election um, because he is the Mencken guy. Um, he is the guy who's supported this candidate. He's been the family touchstone with this candidate who basically everyone in this circle is fucking embarrassed about Mencken. Uh, last week, we had Joy say, like, the actors don't want to be associated with the studio that's, like, endorsing Mencken. And then this week, both Rava, like, her daughter's getting harassed because of the ATM connection. And Willa says, like, all her family fucking hate Mencken. Um, but we, like, you know, heard Roman talk about it last week. He just views Mencken as a different IP. It's Calypsotron, but more material i guess um so like he god it it is just insane because at this point ken is also kind of trying to cut roman out too because i think he sees it as well um and part of that is also ken's just fucking egotistical and wants you know one crown one head um but you can see like roman's gonna spiral out of control i think it's gonna have something to do with the election which i'm gonna assume is next week's episode Mm -hmm. um it'd be really weird if it's not because (laughs) this was the night before the election um that this little party happened uh and i really think whether menken wins or loses it's going to be something with him um like because that's kind of that's all roman has to really offer at this point besides the little rat fucking he's doing on lucas at this point um because roman's completely like kind of ruined everything with the Hollywood branch of ATN. Um, So now his last iron in the fire is this election. And if either he loses or something really bad happens, uh, I can see it just being disastrous for him in this last or this next episode. Yeah. And and there's also this other kind of thing looming in the distance, which is the problem of the funeral. And I think it was really interesting that the, the kind of only time I feel like we've ever seen Roman express a genuine want or need is is when he's asking to give the the eulogy at, at his father's funeral and mm, I think like yeah. you know in in the way that like Shiv kind of makes a face at Kendall doing it because it's obviously a business play and and Kendall is just obviously not interested in hearing from anyone else about it they both seem to have a reaction to Roman requesting it that I think seem to be a sense of like knowledge of of their sibling and and what that would mean to them or what that would mean to to roman and then also a secondary moment of are they human beings enough are they empathetic enough to give this thing that would obviously mean so much to their their brother to to him and and i think the answer is no um but i think more than shiv needs the approval of a now dead man more than kendall needs the approval of a now dead man i think Rome needs that connection because he's got nothing else. And I almost wonder if like there will be some sort of one, two punch of this election, this Menking shit and the funeral and whether or not he's allowed to give the eulogy at it, that that will be his kind of like, you know, the the final blows or even to use a slightly sloppier metaphor, you know, the, the straw that breaks the camel's back and, and, Basically, I'm just at the point where, like, I feel like I know very clearly what Kendall wants. I feel like I know very clearly what Shiv wants. Connor is never coy about what he wants. But what Roman (laughs) wants seems to be this thing that, like, is unanswered, but is, in the fact that it is unanswered, a a massive threat. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. Um, Okay, we need to talk about uh, Greg for a second, because Gregory Hirsch has become just the most detestable little pig on this entire (laughs) show. Um, And it it almost feels like a meta reaction to me. Like, it's like the writers kind of felt, oh, everyone fucking loves Greg. And that is not the intention here. Um, Because, like, I mean, he's still, like, a very fun character to watch on screen, some of the insane things he says. But, like, him being just, like, this, like, hatchet that is just so easily able to do a mass layoff uh, without really breaking a sweat and then when he's done he's just like nice done yep. close laptop time to go party um, and all of this is happening while Tom's like sexting Shiv at the same time and like oh. I love Tom's little like preamble to the people that are about to be fired is like this is never easy and he doesn't say what's going to happen he just you know thank you all um and then he hands it over to greg to just like be like oh yeah you're all getting laid off i see there's some confusion in the chat yes you're all fired um it is just like the most like dehumanizing like way to do this like a mass virtual firing and how neither greg or tom could give any bit of a shit about it they're like too busy you know 
I, I don't want to recreate what uh, Tom says to Shiv in those text messages, but um, it is, he is so thing. despicable. And I think that d- despicability, that despicableness, whatever, um, I sound like, uh, what's it called? Donald Duck here, or <laughs> sorry, Daffy Duck. Uh, it c- carries on into the party when he's hanging out and trying to suck up to uh, Matson and um, Oscar, and I guess no one's really sucking up to Abba, Mm-mm. but uh, like he is just being an absolute ass there too, and um, he just like joins in. He sees that Matson and Oscar are ripping on Abba, and then he absolutely just joins in and starts like chanting her name and yelling at her and saying he'll fire her. Um, and she does not like this at all. Um, but like Greg has no self awareness that he's doing anything but what is being asked of him or what's expected of him. Yeah, and, and and this is I think the thing, right? So like Greg so far has been an outsider, mostly through questions of like timing and competence, um, or relative competence. Um, but but Greg is not actually an outsider in in any genuine way. Like he still comes from the wealth. Um, and so like though he has been this kind of sith apprentice to tom um he you know now the apprentice becomes the master um and 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 greg is finally coming back to to you know he's coming back home to roost in that like he has been afforded a certain level of cruelty by virtue of his wealth um and though that may be insecure in in some ways um it's it's not really gone and he will always kind of be okay um and so his ability to not really blink um as he's firing all of these people and ruining their lives whereas tom still retains enough humanity to feel some shame about it or at least enough emotional reaction to it to force greg to do it in his stead um that i think is the defining difference and and greg is really coming into his own he's he's the fucking ugly duckling becoming this awful bourgeois uh duck i guess mallard um in a way that tom (laughs) never can you know what's the damn it what's the line from a new hope it's like when last we met i was the student and i was but the learner but now i am the master i just it. watched it two days ago it. so thank you that's it you know that that's what greg is now um and 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 his just ability to wield this power with unfeeling cruelty is is really just the sign that like this money corrupts this wealth corrupts um it corrupts it corrupts people from from the very bottom up and and once you are sort of born into it you can't really get out of it um but in the same way as that's true if you're not born into it you can never really make it into it in in quite the same way you will always retain that element of not being a total piece of shit um and and greg's just really going whole hog on being a total piece of shit yeah, um, it actually reminded me, he's like so good at being malleable and agreeable to like the worst people on the earth. Um, because I'm thinking back to last season when they had like that fake uh, conservative convention, <laughs> um, the fake GOP convention. And by the end of the night, they were like, put him up on their shoulders and were chanting, Greg, 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 because he's going to fuck with Greenpeace. <laughs> like he is just such a little worm. He can get in with anyone. Um, as long as there's a little patch of dirt, he's able to get in there. And by the end, Oscar, who Oscar seems like a huge piece of shit working for Madsen. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of him being like what moon dreamed on edibles or whatever, <laughs> however Madsen described it. Um, but like, he's just an absolute asshole. And then within like, 30 seconds and smoking like a vape it looked like greg is able to be like i'm an asshole like you too and they're just hanging out being buddies yeah yeah it's just there's this kind of uh, greg at one point was able to speak the the potentially slightly human voice to the show you know where where tom was this kind of cartoonishly villainous middle manager at ATN, you know, putting his feet up on other human beings, just Greg, you don't have principles. Um, you know, Greg did kind of attempt to articulate a set of principles, no matter how weak and sort of pathetic they were. And now that's just not there anymore. He's just, he, he's so f- far gone. He's, he's Gollum is really what he is. He's Gollum after he's got the ring. Yeah. You know what I was thinking? Um, at the end of last season, when, uh, they're at the wedding and the kids are already off to, you know, do their fucking showdown with dad. And uh, Tom's like getting Greg is like, do you want to do a deal with the devil? Are you going to follow me? And, you know, that just like kind of sets up, but like in a lesser show that Tom would fuck something up and Greg would be like the innocent bystander in like something that happened in season four um, just by being associated with Tom. But in the end, it really is that Greg might be the 
worse of the two. Yeah. Um, and it's not even like you're saying, it's not even that uh, it's the whole Vader Kenobi thing. Like you were saying, it's just like it's not just that he learned from him, but his like natural awfulness or his birthright or whatever um because he is part of the Roy family meant he was always meant to elevate and surpass you know someone like tom in this kind of hierarchy or structure um and i i'm just like in awe and like so happy with how shitty they've made greg this season it just it's perfect and it, it's it's like the willow thing it's like i think we're seeing substantially less greg than we did in the previous seasons like you said but when we do see greg it's just like oh this Oh, what 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 a fucking piece of shit. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And you know what? I think the deal with the devil thing is interesting because I, I feel like there's uh, the 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 reference to me there is is Faust. Um and and not to put um not to put Tom as Faust, but but actually to put Tom as Mephistopheles and and to see Greg as the sort of Faustian figure where like, you know, he may not have been smart. He may not have had much going for him beforehand, but he was a uh, he was something before. Um, he really came over to to you know made that deal with the devil, made that bargain with the devil, and and like Faust, you know, taking advantage of using the terms of of his bargain with Mephistopheles for his own personal gain. Um, Greg is using it for his own personal gain and and in so doing is is just losing his connection with the thing that may have made his life worth living and and worth having before and and um, Tom slash Mephistopheles in in return is is not actually getting an enormous amount out of it because in reality Tom isn't actually the devil um Tom is not actually Mephistopheles um he is he is he wants to be the devil he wants to pretend that he is he wants to pretend he's cutthroat but really in the end he's just a guy who likes money likes a bit of comfort likes a bit of bourgeois decadence and also wants his wife to love him and that parochialism as Schiff calls it means that he can't actually be the devil but but Greg who who isn't really interested in any of those things so far as as we're aware can totally become this this sort of devil-like figure or this indebted to the devil figure um and and not really face any personal consequences for it because what was his personality before that would face consequences yeah um you were talking about like what do these characters want and how roman's kind of uh indiscernible figure greg is also that well i mean he is and he isn't in that he seems like he just wants to ingratiate himself to everyone around him and climb since everyone around him is theoretically kind of higher on the important people list um but like he he like name something human about greg like name one human thing that he wants you don't even see him like he was really wanted to date comfrey and you know thankfully Gumphrey is nowhere to be seen now <laughs> um you know and I think he was chasing like what the archduchess of Prussia or something at the end of last season uh but either which way it's like he very rarely expresses any kind of real human wants or desires even in the context of this like bullshit corporate ladder he's not saying like oh I want to be CEO like Kendall is um he's just like I want to climb. It's it's he's almost like fucking uh, Littlefinger from Game of Thrones. The ladder, the climb is all there is kind of stuff. Um, but he doesn't have any anything like he, remotely human about him. And I think that feeds right into the fact that he can just fire a bunch of people without breaking a sweat. Yeah. Yeah. I just like a uh, man. I can't even like at work. I can't even like be mild, like give mild critiques to people when like it is my job to like give feedback on things. I cannot imagine how like deeply depressing you must be as a human being to be able to like fire that many people and not really have any emotional reaction to it. There's just like a level of alienation from like the human experience involved in that that like is is almost as mind-boggling and like alien to me as the like level of wealth they are all dealing with. And I know those things are connected, but like it's just so like I feel like we're watching the show like they're like animals at a zoo and like we could potentially like tap on the glass but like the ways in which they communicate to each other like are so foreign that we could not possibly fully understand them in the way that we can like understand other human beings basically. <laughs> you know who else is like animals at the zoo that we like to tap on the cages of our patrons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, okay, we're just going to leave that transition in there. Uh, as you may know, um, we uh, 
read the names of our $10 patrons and some of our $5 patrons (laughs) on a rotating basis. They get a fun Middle Earth name from Emily in the group chat. Uh, If you sign up for the Patreon, you can join our Discord. Uh, So, Emily, do you want to start naming the animals and cages we have here? I should really stop this metaphor. Yeah, I'm tapping on the glass for Lothamona Palinka, also (laughs) Johnny Flores Jr. Uh, tapping the glass on Silent <laughs> Spider. Actually, uh, that's a good way yeah. to like distract spiders. Uh, Guardian of Kirith Ungle, aka Ed the Revelator. <laughs> and Lyqua Melma, also known as Zach Newman. Aranwo Minyatar, aka Matthew Abbott. Aranian Taranen, also known as Matthias Henson. Sal Quendil, aka Cam Lewis. <laughs> and Penamal, aka Munjol. <laughs> And uh, for our $5 patrons this week, we want to thank Ananor of Glanamine, a.k.a. Avin. And Reveliel of Erebost, a.k.a. Ariel. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get access to special bonus content and early access to our episodes. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASOIAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be smacking the glass ball on the balcony that Tom is standing at with a hammer so he falls through and ends his misery. <laughs> All right. Uh, toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ithraglier and Drithion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, the Red Guards are ready to round up thought criminals and turn police stations into cuddle puddles. <laughs> <laughs>